point of view, it's dark. It may be daytime. It may be the middle of the night. You have no idea. You lost track of time after the first bolt of electricity coursed through your body. It's dark because you have a blindfold across your eyes. You can feel the cold steel of the restraints against your wrists and ankles. You are praying for death because anything is better than this. What sounds like the opening scene of a horror movie is the unspeakable reality for the women who had the bad fortune to cross paths with David Parker Ray, a.k.a. the Toy Box Killer. I'm Laura. I'm here with my two best friends, Colby and Marina, and this is Grim. I have heart palpitations, <laughs> and I'm uncomfortable already. Wow. I, I am so, so ready for this. <laughs> well, um, for either side of that camp, if you aren't already familiar with the Toy Box Killer, or if you haven't gathered from the intro, I'm going to start with the biggest disclaimer. This is an incredibly graphic case filled with atrocities that's literally the stuff of nightmares. So it's tough for anyone to listen to, but I specifically want to call out a trigger warning for rape and sexual torture. This episode is not for the faint of heart. So please only continue to listen if you're comfortable. I promise we won't be offended. I just, I will give several more disclaimers throughout the the episode, but. Um, So bye guys. uh, I'll see you next week. Let me know how it goes. I hope you have a great recording. <laughs> Goodbye. I yeah. will be a very attentive audience waiting for you. I know. Uh, and I do have a second order of business. I do have to give credit to the book I read. So I read Cries in the Desert. What an uplifting book uh, by John Glatt. I watched many a documentary, read many a news article on this case, but the majority of the information I'm going to share with you comes from this book. Um, and this is the one, by the way, that I mentioned that I had in my living room on my bookshelf a while back. <laughs> Before Grimm <laughs> yeah. was even oh, yeah. a twinkle in our eye, this was just your casual reading on your bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Normal. Totally normal. Yeah, totally normal. Yes, this yeah. is the second time I've read this book. I have highlights now. <laughs> the the other interesting thing about this case is that we all actually have some level of knowledge about the case, yeah. which is a little unique because usually we try to do things that the others don't really know about so That's we can true. get like our genuine reactions mm-hmm. for people to hear. So it will be interesting to see what I remember that's mm-hmm. actually true, what I don't remember. I think Marina's already scarred. I want to <laughs> know how much more scarred you're going to walk out of my house tonight being. Yeah, pretty, pretty bad. Yeah, I, think. I just I can still see the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll, okay. we'll discuss that. It's gonna be hard. Yeah, you'll get through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But first, do you want to meet David Parker Ray? I mean, I don't think you do. I mean, the, the three names. So he's already I, a serial I killer. Know, I know. Yeah. And we'll learn about his three names, which I didn't know why oh. why he has three names. Grim fact. I mean, we all do. Yes, but you know. All right. So. David Parker Ray was born on November 6th, 1939 in New Mexico. His father, Cecil, was often violent and drank heavily, also a theme that we see. His mother's name was Nettie. When David was 10, his father left the family, yet another theme. Nettie moved in with her parents and David and his younger sister, she's a year younger, Peggy, moved in with their paternal grandparents. 
their grandfather, Ethan, known as Old Man Parker, was extremely strict, including specific rules about how the children dressed. And this, combined with his quietness, caused David to be bullied at school. He wasn't a great student either, so he, he really wasn't having a good time. Um, and Old Man Parker was a devout Christian and was happy to beat the children if they didn't behave. So, not a great household. What was the one from The Silk? Was that um, the Rod of Correction? The Rod oh, of yes. Correction. Great callback. <laughs> yes. I wonder, I wonder yep. if I he had the yeah. Rod of Correction. I'm guessing he had multiple. Actually, that could explain a lot in this yeah. case. Yeah, okay. So... Um, Nettie rarely saw her children once they went off to um, their grandparents, and Cecil only visited twice. Um, David's grandparents gave him a scooter when he was 13, which is actually pretty nice, and he learned that he had a mechanical gift, much like our friend Marv from the last episode. He was able to take it apart and reassemble it, and he gained confidence from this in addition to more popularity because the kids would bring him bikes to fix and that sort of thing. I, I already hate that he's handy because I know oh, that he uses mm-hmm. his his mm-hmm. skills for evil. Yeah, he's not using his powers for good later in life. No, where did Maybe you go both? wrong? Yeah, well, we we'll find out here in just actually just a minute because <laughs> that was not the only interest he had. Uh, he was also interested in in inappropriate content from a young age. Even as a virgin, he was into sadistic sadistic porn. His sister found it, asked him about it. He was like, "Oh, I'm just I'm just interested. I don't know why she let that pass, but." Um, so, yeah, he would do drawings of it and had all sorts of pictures and terrible things. And that was very young. Was he sexually assaulted as a kid? Nothing that I could see about it. Is that like an inherent, like, deviant behavior? Yeah. Like, I feel, yeah. Because it sort of makes sense to me in cases where there's, like, sexual assault because it's what they know. Mm-hmm. But where it's not, it just, it's Surprising. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So in the summer of 57, when David was 17, their grandmother died. And for some reason, the kids were split up. Uh, So Peggy stayed with old man Parker and David went back to live with his mother in Albuquerque. As a very unimportant aside, I have never typed Albuquerque so many times. And it's a really terrible word to type. I just (laughs) want to put that out. Nothing wrong with the town. Just really annoying to type. I don't ever want to type it again. I'm not sure I could spell Albuquerque just got grimmed. I would say I I did learn. I thought it was A-L-B-E-Q and it's A-L-B-U-Q. So there you go. Oh, I would definitely have spelled that wrong. Yeah, I did the first 50 times. So now I know. Yeah, I don't think that I've had to write out Albuquerque a lot either. Well, we're going to say it again. (laughs) (laughs) One more Albuquerque. (laughs) Once in Albuquerque. (laughs) He, David, graduated high school and left home to work as a handyman, as we might have figured. He began dating a woman who he married in April 1959. The book actually didn't give her real name, but referred to her as Thelma. They had a child also named David uh, in 1960. He went into the army using his mechanical skills, basically right after getting Thelma pregnant. Uh, He was there for three years, but he filed for divorce in 1961 and also asked for custody of David Jr., which Thelma didn't fight, surprisingly. David ended up going back into the army and his mother ended up taking care of his son. He met his next wife, wife number two, Marilyn, also not her real name. It was a quick romance. They were married in winter 1962, so he had just divorced in 61. And three months later, David filed for divorce. So that was a super quick one. And he left the army again in 1963 and became a truck driver, and uh, he was choosing his mother's home as kind of a home base while he was a truck driver. He met his next wife, Glenda, in 1966, and they had a daughter 
named Glenda Jean. They really like to name their children <laughs> after themselves. But Glenda Jean went by Jessie, and that's how we'll refer to her throughout this case. She was born on May 2nd, 1967. However, apparently still not interested in remaining married, David left the family to go hitchhiking around with a young girl named Sally. One of the places they stopped was a truck stop, and David started talking with the owner of the truck stop, who offered him a job as a mechanic. So the the owner let David and Sally move into their trailer with him and his girlfriend. And a few months later, the owner and his girlfriend woke up to find Sally and all of her possessions just gone. David said she was, quote, a free spirit and just went on her own way. Everyone continued about their business, apparently just accepting that. Seeing as they were kind of hitchhiking and, and passing through, I guess they were okay with it. Until later that year, David declared he was going to move on and moved back with his wife, Glenda, and child, Jesse, um, along with Glenda's son, Ron, from a previous marriage. So now he's back with them. Still obsessed with all things mechanical, he got his aircraft mechanic certification in April 1969, and this allowed him to get a well-paying teaching job at the prestigious Spartan School of Aeronautics in Oklahoma. So he's a smarty. He's definitely talented. And he moved his family there. Life seemed to be pretty good at this point. David had a respectable job, his wife and children were happy, and from the outside, everything was normal. But it wouldn't last long. David felt the need to be on the move. By the 70s, he had changed jobs and moved his family to Texas, where he ran a gas station and volunteered as a fireman. But only a couple years later, he moved them back to Albuquerque, doing repairs for the railroad, which meant he was basically never home. He and Glenda grew further and further apart, and in 1983, they separated. At this point, David moved to Phoenix, Arizona, now going by his mother's maiden name, Parker, so that he was David Ray after his grandfather, and then uh, took his mother's maiden name, Parker. He was, again, a successful mechanic in Arizona, and shortly after settling down, he met wife number four, (laughs) Joni Lee. His profession afforded him a comfortable lifestyle, and he would frequently travel, specifically back to New Mexico, as well as Mexico, or old Mexico. As I, my brain would like to say. <laughs> um, Mexico, you have also been grim. The, the OG Mexico. Exactly. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I like that we had OT God in the last episode. Oh, yeah. Now we'll have OG Mexico. <laughs> I will refer to it heretofore as OG Mexico. Uh, he and Joni Lee bought a place in Stone Lake, New Mexico, and leased a trailer in the town of Elephant Butte. And this town is spelled like it would sound like elephant butt. I was going to say <laughs> yep. elephant beauty. Yeah, exactly. It does have an E there. It is actually beautiful. The main attraction is this giant man-made reservoir, and it's actually the largest in the state at over 38,000 acres, which is huge wow. for a lake That's and ginormous. up to 200 feet deep. David's property, ba- property backed up to this lake, so you can understand the appeal. As someone, I will say, as someone from the small states of New England, I think I underappreciated what it meant to quote unquote travel to these places. So I looked up where they were. Elephant View is six hours east of Phoenix and Stone Lake is another five hours north from there. So this was his little triangle that is like the entire size of New England. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You would have to drive to the borders of Connecticut, like back and forth six times to drive six hours within the state. So exactly. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) So this distance is a great way to make sure you don't run into anyone you know when you're using these places for a nice weekend retreat. But this getaway might be a little different than you and I imagine. Conveniently located within driving distance to OG Mexico and surrounded by neighbors that go elsewhere in the winter, it's a 
perfect place to bring prostitutes from south of the border for sexual bondage sessions. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's what he did. Okay. That was his weekend activity. But where was his wife? Uh, back in uh, Phoenix, okay. Arizona. So not a participant in no. this stuff. Was nope. she aware of it, this wife? Or? I don't think so. Nope. Nope. Which would explain why he was, she wasn't his wife for much longer, I think. But Are we going to get a fifth wife? <sighs> not a wife, but a fifth oh, woman. He learned yep. finally. Yeah, Divorce apparently. is expensive, guys. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, true. Although David did prefer to hold his exploits in his weekend homes, it didn't stop him from doing so at home if the mood struck. And as a result, David's daughter, Jessie, was privy to this at much too young an age. She was aware of his activities when she was barely a teenager, although she obviously didn't understand it. She even witnessed him bring home a prostitute from OG Mexico only to have the woman run out of the house naked because he was too violent. Which Ew, David. That is, yeah, it's no. all that's oh. going through my head. Ew, Are you going to tell us where Jessie is today? Is she okay? We're going to... No. She, okay. she is right. most definitely okay. not okay. You'll, you'll tell yeah. us? Okay. We, yes, you'll learn. So at 19, Jessie tried to get out of this, so she actually went to the FBI about her father and gave a formal complaint claiming he would kidnap women and torture them before bringing them to OG Mexico. I should probably stop saying that. It's not funny anymore now. <laughs> to sell as sex slaves. <laughs> the FBI spent the next year investigating. David himself seemed unperturbed. He was cooperative, telling them all about his sexual preferences and even referring to himself as potentially dangerous. Despite all of this, the FBI dropped the investigation as, quote, the allegations were nonspecific. Those are pretty specific allegations. <laughs> but the problem is, if it's consensual, like, people yeah. do crazy shit behind yeah. closed doors. And if it's consensual, exactly. then, or if they're getting paid, and it, so it's yep. semi-consensual. Yeah, I mean, according to them, a thorough investigation was accomplished based on the information known at the time. And when the logical investigation was completed and leads were covered, the case was closed. So... No further. I'm just, I'm trying to imagine the balls on this guy. The FBI is like questioning him and he's like, yeah, I, I might be dangerous. You know, so my, my taste might be very <laughs> singular. <laughs> <laughs> Probably exactly what he said, yeah. actually. Yeah. They're yep. like, uh, case closed, guys. Yep. He's fine. He's a freak. He's but all right, Freak yeah. in the sheets, but he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> he's okay on the streets. He's a though. gentleman. <laughs> a gentleman in the streets. <laughs> actually, he really was, though. People, okay, we'll talk about it, but people definitely respected him, which is nuts. <laughs> Free to continue practicing his hobby, David renewed his focus. He was a self-proclaimed sexual scientist, highly skilled in the art of pain. And he meant this literally. He wanted to perform tests with clinical precision. In preparation, he researched the best psychological methods to break down a victim mentally and physically. No, I don't like that. Unrelated, what did he find was the most effective mechanism <laughs> to mentally break down your enemy? Uh, we'll get to that in the toy box experience. Oh, I, the experience! I, I, called, I called it the that toy box like experience. That's like a horror ride at like Universal Studios. That's um, that's my own doing. I called that section that. So also, we'll get there. that sounds like that question was um wholly related to what we're talking about. <laughs> That or we should, we should call the police. <laughs> just get out of here. I'm just learning, guys. You know, and we like our listeners to learn. And I'm just, I'm seeking to learn. Mm-hmm. Our producer's in trouble. <laughs> uh, I love my husband. It's okay. <laughs> Blink twice. Okay. He was also an entrepreneur, having previously built and sold specialized bondage equipment, and he also created hardcore S and M bondage movies that he sold as well. I imagine all the pro- proceeds were used to build his real vision, the ultimate torture chamber. 
the famed toy box. (laughs) So sad. In 1991, David left Phoenix for good to spend more time in Elephant Butte to work on this vision. To keep money flowing in, he started his own auto body shop. And because he was the only emergency repairman in the area, he was the go-to for breakdowns. My first thought is what your faces say, which is, wow, that's a great way to abduct people. (laughs) But he, he didn't. He got a reputation as a great guy, super helpful, always went out of his way. And I don't, the book didn't say anything and I didn't find anything that he did actually, I mean, it's possible, but there was no, there were no reports of him abducting anyone in that role. That actually makes sense. So when you did, when you said it, I was thinking, (laughs) wow, that's a great way to abduct people. But if every time a service call goes out and the person goes missing, it'd be really easy to track it back to him. Exactly. Yeah. He, he doesn't yep. seem dumb. He's, he seems no. a little savvy. So uh, Definitely. I, yeah, I could see why he would not be uh, shopping for victims at his no. place of business. No. I hate that in a serial killer. I do too. It's just, it's very uh, lazy. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do better. No, yeah. I, I, like David hate, I hate when they're savvy. Because oh. <laughs> they get away with so much more and it goes on for so much That's longer. true. I thought you meant you hate when they're lazy. <laughs> no, and because then they get caught. Sorry, that's and, yeah, Here we me. have the I'm difference. Thinking, yep. Mm. We think differently. That's why we compliment each other. That's why one of you had heart palpitations at the beginning and one was just excited. Yes. (laughs) One one hates unsolved cases. One one of us needs a lot, a lot of therapy. (laughs) All right. Can it be both of us? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. Around this time, David broke off his marriage with Joni Lee. She moved out and Jesse, his daughter, moved in. Shortly before this, Jesse had had a baby girl rumors were that it was david's but she said it was a friend um and she was actually in a long-term relationship with a woman and there was no other they had a very very weird connected relationship but i don't know that it was actually sexual between the two of them they definitely had a weird relationship why would she move in with him she called the fbi on him she yeah that was the last time that she went against him after that i think she just was full steam ahead (laughs) okay yep yep I don't, I don't like this for Jesse. No, it's not good. Is it more like she's desperate for resources and needs like a parental figure and money and like somewhere to Probably. keep her child and or I, like she loves him and wants to spend time with him and be around him? I actually think there's a weird combination of all of that. Okay. Yeah. So, so she, she did, she moved in with him and he was a re- reinvented man yet again. He's now going by David Parker Ray, having re-picked up his, his Ray last name. And he would frequently pop over to the next town, Truth or Consequences. That's a real name? That is a real name. And I thought you might wonder what kind of a name that is for a town. I will tell you. It was originally named Hot Springs, far more normal, but changed its name in 1950 for a contest. At this time, there was a hit game show, Truth or Consequences. The premise of the game, hosted by Ralph Edwards, was that contestants had a couple of seconds to correctly answer a trivia question, the quote truth part of it, and then if they got it wrong, and they basically rigged it so that they would always get it wrong, then they had to do some crazy stunt, the consequences. And for the 10th anniversary of the show, they spun up a a contest to find a town willing to permanently change their name to the name of the show. And the town council in Hot Springs was like, heck yeah, that's exactly what I'd like to do. And they, I think they like were the only ones to submit. Gosh. <laughs> they, they won. Um, and so they came and did the anniversary show and hosted it there. So now it's called Truth or Consequences. I did know that that was a town and yeah. I was wondering like how it got a name like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's amazing. As an aside, do you know what that makes me think of? 
uh, you know when they had that like new expensive boat and they did a contest to name it and the winning name was Bodie McBoatface and they were yes. so sad that they yes. had to name this like million dollar boat yes. Bodie McBoatface. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And I did think, although it's like a silly thing that it was named after a game show, I actually thought it was kind of an appropriate name of a town to be kind of the stage for this case because it's, I don't, I don't know, it just seemed, yeah. you know, I like the poetic stuff. So, um, Anyway, so truth or consequences, or often just called TRC, which is what I'll call it because uh, it's hard to say <laughs> a bunch of times, is it's not a great town. It's really remote desert town with a population of about 6,000, not a lot of work available, and it is on the main drug route from Mexico, meaning there's a lot of drugs, most often meth, and most residents just turn to the other cheek when um, with unsavory activities. So this worked well for David. In addition to his private activities in Elephant Butte, he was also making a lot of shady friends in TRC, many of whom would join him for very questionable sex parties. This was a pretty well-known fact, but it did not affect the public's opinion of him. In fact, he had just taken a new job as a park ranger in Elephant Butte State Park and was named Employee of the Month in June 1995 for his creation of a portable light for unit for $50, saving the park $7,500. And this is actually still in use today, like this system. Hmm. So, yeah, everybody loved him. Now, you may be thinking at this point, hey, Laura, yeah, David's got some pretty strange interests and he seems to be a decently successful guy. And this hasn't been really nearly as disturbing um, as you said it would be in the beginning. Well, this is your second disclaimer that it is going to get worse. So if you've stuck around this long, you're like, yeah, yeah, I can do this. Maybe think again. So, Marina, the door is that way. Guys, if you're loving Grim, follow us on Instagram. <laughs> See you guys later. Bye. Um, again, no no hard feelings if you decide to abandon ship. But mm-hmm. Run, don't walk to yeah. the exit. <laughs> so, David's mechanical skills were not only put to use for his work life, but he continued to use them in his personal life as he finished his prized toy box. Once complete, he settled into a routine. He would target prostitutes or junkies. In other words, people who would were unlikely to be reported missing, which is my other theory why uh, he wouldn't pick people up uh, when he was doing all the towing and repair for the same reason Marina said. He would often find them in TRC and take them by gunpoint into his van where he would blindfold them and bring them home. Once they arrived, they'd be locked up while still blindfolded and he would play him his, quote, orientation tape. I'm going to play you the beginning of this tape in just a second and I'm giving you yet another warning that this is very graphic. Hello there, bitch. Are you comfortable right now? I doubt it. Wrists and ankles chained, gagged, probably blindfolded. You are disoriented and scared too, I would imagine. Perfectly normal under the circumstances. For a little while, at least, you need to get your shit together and listen to this tape. It is very relevant to your situation. I'm going to tell you, in detail, why you have been kidnapped, what's going to happen to you, and how long you'll be here. I don't know the details of your capture, because this tape is being created July 23rd, 1993, as a general advisory tape for future female captives. The information I'm going to give you is based on my experience dealing with captives over a period of several years. 
If, at a future date, there are any major changes in our procedures, the tape will be upgraded. Now, you are obviously here against your will. Totally helpless. Don't know where you're at. Don't know what's going to happen to you. You're very scared. Or very pissed off. I'm sure that you've already tried to get your wrists and ankles loose. No, you can't. Now you're just waiting to see what's going to happen next. You probably think you're going to be raped, and you're fucking sure right about that. Our primary interest is in what you've got between your legs. You'll be raped, thoroughly and repeatedly, in every hole you've got. Because, basically, you've been snatched and brought here for us to train and use as a sex slave. Sound kind of far out? Uh, suppose it is to the uninitiated, but we do it all the time. It's going to take a lot of adjustment on your part, and you're not going to like it a fucking bit. Okay, welcome back. How, how are you guys doing? So, so Marina and Colby listened to the entirety of the tape. For you gremlins, I saved you and only did about two minutes of it. Um, but they're speechless. It, it was brutal. Um, for the part that we are playing on the podcast, for the listeners, I will say one observation I had is it was very clinical almost mm -hmm. with the way... Like he was almost describing the experiment and even though he was saying all of these atrocious things, even after we, we cut the clip, everything was very clinical. And the other thing that I noticed is he made a couple mentions to us or we. Mm -hmm. So if I'm sitting in there right so far, we've, we've been talking about this man, David Parker Ray, but now I'm kind of thinking, oh, he has help with mm -hmm. him. So those are the two things that yeah. I really picked up from the clip. Yep, agreed on the clinical, and that's that's why I said he really meant it that he was the sexual scientist. Like, yeah, he took it very seriously. Um, and yes, we'll learn about who gave him a hand. I just hate it too because I feel like listening to that, um, the way that he's saying what they're feeling, mm -hmm. what they've done, that would be even more unnerving to you. Um, to be listening to exactly what you're feeling. Like, yes, I already Ugh. checked to see if I yeah. could get the restraints off. Like, yes, yep. I'm blindfolded. Yes, I'm pissed. Yes, yep. I'm scared. Yes, I'm like... I, that would just amplify mm -hmm. all the emotions that you were feeling. And, like, his voice is so creepy. Do you know what it reminded me of? The Saw movies. Oh. Where, like, it's like, yes. do you want to play a game? And it, like, got... I, don't. I got that It's a mind vibe. game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's playing Absolutely. a mind game. Absolutely. So, after listening to this recording, victims would then be brought out to the toy box or were already in the toy box. The 22-foot-long cargo trailer next to his own trailer was soundproofed from top to bottom and had a deadbolt lock with a reinforced steel frame. He added an HVAC system since the trailer was airtight when it was closed, as well as a portable toilet. And hanging right inside was a hand-painted welcome sign reading Satan's Den. Inside the trailer on the wall, he posted an exhaustive 18-point list of, quote, psychological and physical procedures for initial handling of the captive personal fetish. I don't like that. No. Very clinical, though. Very clinical. Step by step. There was a full seven-foot coffin laying on one side of the trailer, complete with restraint hooks at either end and ventilation holes. 
there was a TV monitor where the victim could watch themselves being tortured, and it's also how he recorded things, because he recorded, I think, all of them. Throughout the trailer, there was an extensive system of ropes and pulleys, as well as some gurneys, weights, pliers, clamps, whips, scalpers, chains, and padlocks. On the walls were pictures and drawings of women being tortured and a glass cabinet containing a diorama of naked toy figures engaged in bondage activities. Okay, but why is that necessary when you have sex slaves there? Like, it just seems like overkill to have dioramas and and drawings of what you're doing in there on the wall. Do you really need that much extra inspiration? You know what terrible analogy I have for you? Uh, It's like guys, sorry to my husband, but guys who are obsessed with cars, they have a car in the garage and then they have a project car and then they have pictures of cars on the wall and then they might have like diagrams or like, you know, the little cars. So I think it's if you're just that obsessed. Okay. You just ruined cars for me to like draw the parallel between that. (laughs) Sorry. I'm still thinking it's a mind game because it's it's just more like disturbing imagery that's constantly surrounding you. But I I did also remember you told us when he was a child, he liked to draw things. So he's still drawing on the walls. Yes. Okay. Yep. Other medical cabinets also lined the walls. So again, clinical containing syringes, chemicals, different sized dildos, electric cattle prods, and other devices to inflict pain. Mm. On the counter, there were various pieces of equipment labeled vagina stretcher, ankle spreader, and knee spreader. It was like the devil's doctor's office. And what, it was Satan's den, right? Exactly. And this was true even down to his pride and joy, a remote controlled gynecological chair complete with stirrups. Nope. Complete with stirrups. Oh, I wasn't nope in the stirrups. I oh. wasn't nope in the concept of the chair. Oh. <laughs> no, I no. Like, well, I said stirrups like I would say syrup. Um, that was wrong. <laughs> just so maybe I'll uh, say just that. Just a whole mechanical yeah. gynecologist chair. I'm out. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't w- like the non-mechanical one. Right. I don't want. I don't want yep. the robot gyno. Well, I'm good. It, it, it gets worse. No. Yep. It was designed to slide freely back and forth on a six foot track so it could be positioned under someone held midair by all those pulleys and ropes. And it also had electrodes at the head and midsection so the victim on the chair could be shocked. Yep. This guy should be working for like Pratt and Whitney or Sikorsky yeah. and just like using his powers for good instead of evil. Don't we always say that? We mm-hmm. do yeah, always we say do. that. And I'm going to say it every single yep. time because yep. it's true. Victims were subjected to days of this torture. Actually, not typically the months, as he says in the tape. It's really uh, usually only days. They were oh, that barely, makes it better. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> barely given any food or water and hardly allowed, allowed to use the toilet. Was it days because they got sick of them or days because the captives weren't like participating in the way that they wanted them? Probably to? Both. both. Yeah, I think so. So once he was done with them, he would give them sodium pentothal, which is a rapid onset, short acting general anesthetic, which was actually the first used to be the first of three drugs administered in a lethal injection. And it can be also used for medically induced comas. Following that, he would also give them phenobarbital, which is typically used to control seizures. But the combination caused the victim to forget what happened to them and be highly susceptible to hypnosis. So he would basically messed with their minds right before he let them go and then they would come to often like on the side of the highway not having any recollection of how they got there or what happened to them 
that was honestly the best gift that he could have given them. Yep. Because um, at, we listened to the full recording right. and the alternative was death. Yep. So I guess messing with their mind is better. And also, can you imagine after dealing with days of torture, you just get this sweet injection that knocks you out. You'd yeah. be like, thank God. Yep. I mean, like, really? Yep. Yep. Exactly. So one woman who experienced this is Kelly Van Cleef. Despite her nickname Sassy for her bubbly personality, Kelly did not have a happy childhood. Growing up in Wisconsin, Kelly went from being a daddy's girl to a rebellious teen where she began smoking weed and engaging in sexual relationships with men much older than her. This came to a head at 17 when she dropped out of school to move in with an older man. And not surprisingly for someone who would date and move in with a minor, the man became abusive. She had some good friends, though, who managed to get her away from him, and she fled to Kansas. There, she got a job as a babysitter, but the pattern reappeared and she began an inappropriate relationship with the father. She actually ended up moving with him to TRC in early 1996 and got another job there, but then he left her once she got there. She decided to stay in TRC and met another man who she quickly married, but that marriage fizzled out as well. By herself again, she met Jesse and they became close friends. She met another man, Patrick Murphy, in the spring of that year. And they were a match instantly. While Jesse's friends, which were now Kelly's friends, were definitely on the drug scene, Patrick, who was a clean-cut Marine on shore leave, wanted nothing to do with that, so he was a good influence for Kelly. But another problem with Jesse's friends was that one of them, named Cassandra, was determined to steal Patrick. It was so incessant that Kelly and Patrick staged a fake wedding to, to get her off his back, which ended up being a real wedding when Patrick proposed right before the fake ceremony. Kelly said yes, and the two were wed. Kind of romantic. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Patrick's family, who had been at the ceremony, wasn't as happy. Where Patrick was a good influence on Kelly, Kelly was not a great influence on Patrick. And even though they were newlyweds, the two fought often over sex. Kelly had a medical condition which made intercourse painful. Patrick's mother witnessed one fight that caused Patrick and Kelly to leave without a word to one another. To blow off steam, Kelly went to the bar with Jesse and some of their friends, and at the end of the night, the two friends that Kelly had driven there with left without her. Jesse offered her a ride, meaning back to her house with Patrick, but as they started driving, Jesse said she was too tired to go that far and suggested they just go to her father's house. Kelly wasn't concerned about this. She had met David before uh, in the past and had already been to the house several times, so it made sense. But this time was different, and I'm going to give yet another trigger warning, just trying to take care of my gremlins okay after having kelly sit down on the couch jesse and david held a knife to her throat and handcuffed her and then locked a spiked metal dog collar around her neck duct tape was put across her mouth and over her eyes she was then brought to the toy box she was so terrified at that point that she passed out there david stripped kelly naked put her on the gynecological chair bound her thighs and ankles with nylon straps attached to heavy chains He then used smelling salts to bring her back to consciousness and played the orientation tape. After the recording finished, he began the first torture session. I will leave out the additionally graphic details to the imagination, or you can read the book that I read to find out. But over the course of the next three days, he made great use of the implements he had so carefully curated. While Kelly was experiencing her worst nightmares come to life at the hands of her former friends, her husband and family thought she had just run off. She had previously been involved in drugs and really didn't have a good history. Um, So they just thought 
she they had had fights and she had yeah. just run off for good. And I also just want to note that shitty ass husband thief Cassandra swooped in right then and offered to help get the marriage annulled. I just didn't appreciate that, Cassandra. Was part of why they took her to like open the door for Cassandra at all? Was nope. Okay, Jesse wasn't nope. trying to be a good friend to Cassandra. No. Okay. No, she was just being a good oh. daughter. And uh, she was just being a really shitty friend yes. to this exactly. girl. Yeah. Exactly. I'm really mad at Jesse. Yeah, Jesse sucks. Oh, she in, does. In right now. Yeah. No, she she does the rest of it. Mm-hmm. First she calls the FBI, then she's like, okay, I want in on this. Can't beat him, join him. Yeah. Basically what she thought. She sucks. Yeah. So having received the standard concoction of memory erasing drugs, Kelly's first memory was actually of David, but in his Parker Park Rangers uniform, buying her coffee at the local shop. He said he found her wandering around incoherent. He offered to drive her back to Patrick's. When she arrived, Patrick took one look at her and thought she was on drugs because she was still in the same clothes she had left in three days earlier, clearly hadn't showered, totally out of it. So he just thought she was on a bender and he kicked her out. So this poor girl has been literally tortured for three days and her new husband is like, "Mm, yep, see you later. And the next morning, Patrick and his mother brought Kelly to the courthouse to sign the papers for divorce. Literally the next morning. Hashtag true love. Yeah. Yeah, Really. And she was in bad shape, but she couldn't remember, you know, really physically in bad shape, but she couldn't remember what happened and she chose not to go to the hospital. 16 days after they were married, Patrick and Kelly divorced. They did also get the the marriage annulled, and only two days later, Patrick married Cassandra. Very angry. Cassandra's a bitch. Yeah. Well, Carmen did come a bit because only nine weeks later, Patrick told Cassandra he wanted a divorce and then left on an assignment. But when he returned, he found that Cassandra had taken everything, all his money, everything. <laughs> Just as an aside. So Carmen came for both of them. Yeah, yes, pa- Patrick's definitely. not likable either in this situation. Yep. <laughs> so that that is what happened to Kelly. And as far as she knows, she was just found you know, incoherent, lost okay. her husband. She doesn't remember what happened. And she goes on with her life. But how creepy he, the, her first memory is of him like caring for her and pretending to be the good guy, mm-hmm. giving her coffee or like, oh, honey, exactly. I found you wandering. Let exactly. me take care of you. Because she knew him still, obviously, yep. exactly. even though he had like erased her memory or, or played with her memories. She still recognizes him exactly. as her friend's dad. You got it. Yep. Oh, I hate it. Yep. So another one of the TRC friend group headed up by Jesse was a man named Roy Yancey. Roy had grown up in TRC and despite coming actually from a great family, had caused trouble for most of his young life. So it was really no surprise that he and Jesse became fast friends and Jesse introduced him to her father. This led to him joining the famed sadomasochistic sex parties that David would hold, even becoming a participant with, I'll say, questionable willingness on that in one of them where he was held down and sodomized by a broom handle. So that's why I question the um, willingness there. That's when but it became too real for him at that moment. Possibly. Yeah. So Jesse and Roy, again, friends, always looking for trouble, befriended a 43-year-old loner who had arrived in TRC from Florida named Kenneth Lee Lane. They frequently visited Ken at his apartment, and the three were engaged in drugs and really weird sex. Not super surprising, given who Jesse's father is. However, on New Year's Day, 1996, police uh, neighbors called police for a bad smell coming from Ken's apartment. We we know at this point, if you're listening yeah. to a true crime podcast, you know, bad smells. Not good. They broke down the door to find Ken's badly decomposed body. Interestingly, this is truly interesting right now. <laughs> <laughs> the death was initially ruled an accident, 
caused by metallic poisoning because the autopsy showed an assortment of nuts and bolts in his stomach and a doorknob lodged in his rectum. Upon further investigation of the apartment, the cause was changed to a suicide, which I still don't think makes any sense, but Roy and Jesse were not implicated. <laughs> I, wish, I wish there was a video to capture uh, our faces right now. Oh, I'm sorry. They ruled it a suicide uh, going for the metal poisoning with uh, doorknobs and nuts and bolts Evidently. inside of your body. Yep. Or the accident. I accidentally <laughs> ate all of the nuts and bolts and then sat on the doorknob to finish off the meal. <laughs> Apparently. Yep. So, but again, Roy and Justine's diet. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't see the dead body coming because you didn't give me a date. I know. A date, uh, a date I did say certain. New Year's Day. Oh. So I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. January 1st, 1996. <laughs> I missed it. New Year's Day was a different day that year. Actually. <laughs> okay. So it's suspicious circumstances for Almost Kenneth. definitely. <laughs> Most definitely. But nobody, again, it, just like her father, they, Jesse went near people that wouldn't be missing or wouldn't be noticed if anything happened. Again, Ken was come from florida didn't have anybody so so is the theory that he was involved that david parker ray was involved nope jesse is her own mini monster yep oh it's all jesse okay with roy as her accomplice yep we have no actual proof of that because they weren't charged with it but yes that is the theory okay yep yep now, so later, when I asked earlier if Jesse was okay, and, and you said no, I mean, you really, really meant no. Like, she's not okay. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm following like along Like, my now. chemical romance level. <laughs> not okay. Yeah. Such a good song. Yeah, it's such a Trust good song. Trust me. Yeah. Yep. So later that year, Roy started dating a woman named Marie Parker. Only 21, Marie had already lived a tough life, like many of the women in this case. She had left home at 15, ultimately making it to Las Vegas, where she turned to prostitution. When she met Roy, she had two children and a bad drug problem. Roy and Marie were a match in their chaos and love for drugs. To Marie's credit, she did end up breaking up with Roy in an attempt to get to better herself and get off drugs. But now homeless, Marie's good friend, Jesse, offered her a tent on her father's property to stay in. On July 4th weekend, 1996, Marie had gone to a bar in town with Jesse. This is basically all they did is they went to the bars in town, from what I can tell, who uh, had told her that she had a hookup with a drug dealer. So Jesse drove Marie to the alleged location. But when they got out of the car, Jesse pulled a gun on Marie and handcuffed her. Fuck you, Jesse. Yeah, Jesse oh, I'm getting, really sucks. Oh, yeah, I'm getting she's so mad. Not good. I felt yeah. bad when I said she sucked because of who her father was, but mm-hmm. I no longer feel bad. I mean, to be fair, she definitely did not stand a chance. Right. But it's yeah, she's bad. <sighs> she's her own monster. Yeah, but you could be you could be like a different level of fucked up. Mm-hmm. You could be like yeah. I don't know, just yeah. a different level of fucked up. That's mm-hmm. not like if you can't beat them, join them. No, that, that level. was definitely her mo. Yeah, totally. I, I, do you think? And I'll let you get back to it. But do you no, think it was partially because she wanted like her father's love and acceptance that she I can did? See that definitely because it was it was like delivering women to right. him and a part of it. And I could totally see that. Yeah, and it's yep. an activity they can do together. Yeah. Oh, I hate I father daughter. Interestingly, I I don't know how much Jesse actually participated in it i think it was very little i think it was mostly delivering yeah okay well she had her own games with like nuts and bolts doorknob guys so yes she's not innocent by any stretch of the imagination not at all 
So now Jesse has Marie handcuffed at this at this parking lot. And I'm unclear if Roy had been with them the whole time or if he met them there. But either way, after Marie was back in the car, he sat in the back to restrain her while Jesse drove them back to her father's trailer. Roy then remained in the house while Jesse and David brought Marie out to the toy box. Like Kelly, this went on for days. On Tuesday, July 8th, Roy was at the house and David and Jesse told them they were done with Marie and that it was, quote, time for her to go. They brought him out to the toy box and handed him a piece of rope and told him to strangle her. He says it was at gunpoint. They say it wasn't. It was not good either way for Marie. They told Roy to strangle her? Correct. Yep. Yep. So after Marie was dead, the three of them packaged up her body and brought it to a remote location where they buried her. And Roy and Jesse then went on the run, staying in Texas for nearly a year to let things cool down and ensure no one, no one suspected them. And David stayed behind. Why did she have to die? I was just going to say, how did they decide yeah. who lives and who dies? I honestly don't know. And in, in the entire book and all of my reading, I can't figure out who he lets live and who he kills. Oh, it's like a super shitty lottery. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So if you've heard of the Toy Box Killer, you've probably heard of Cindy Hendy. While David is certainly the dark star in the case, and I'll add that Jesse probably is as well, Cindy is also one hell of a monster. Growing up initially in Seattle, she did have a dysfunctional childhood, having been sexually abused and finding drugs and alcohol early. She dropped out of school in eighth grade and got pregnant at 16, but her son and his future siblings would never be raised by Cindy. She was too busy finding the next abusive man in her path. She had three husbands, all of whom served jail time for one thing or another. And again, Cindy was no peach herself. There's some reports of she was kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde personality when she was sober. She was kind of actually nice and just like watched TV and, you know, just watched her daytime soaps and all that. But she was drunk most of the time. So there was there was no nice side. She had been arrested many times for a variety of felony charges, and by the 90s, she was officially classified as mentally disabled and lived off her social security. Even with this, she continued to rack up arrests with one judgment handing down a mandatory drug rehabilitation program, which she refused and fled from Washington to TRC. And that is where she quickly gained a reputation for partying hard, which is a pretty high standard in TRC (laughs) to be noticed for that. Uh, But it was around this time in summer of 1998 that Roy and Jesse felt it was safe enough to return to CRC. Remember, they had gone on the run. Uh, And, of course, they met Cindy. So, yeah. What kind of stars have to align for these insane deviants to just come together in this random, tiny-ass town? Exactly. Yes. I don't know. And that's why I thought the truth or consequences part of the the name was very interesting. Very poetic. Yep. Cindy, Jesse, and Roy embarked on a polyamorous relationship, interestingly, often spending their time at David's house. And only a few months later, Cindy broke up with Jesse and Roy and instead started dating David. As one does. Yep. Yep. She eventually moved in when Jesse left to go spend some time with relatives in Texas in January 1999. So at this point, it's a dangerous time to be a prostitute in TRC. And the next woman in the bullseye was Angelica Montano. Angelica was born in 1972, living in Albuquerque. Like so many others in this case, she came from a broken home and dropped out of school as a teenager, doing drugs and turning tricks to make her way. She moved to TRC in 1998 with a plan to clean up her life, but she met Cindy. 
The two became good friends, if you could call it that. Most of their time together was spent drinking or doing drugs. Now, later that year, Angelica agreed to be paid to join a sex party hosted by David. According to those in attendance, she was more tortured than a willing participant. Likely on heroin, she had agreed to bondage play, but then David began using an electric cattle prod with Cindy holding her down. She made it out alive and was too afraid to go to the police. And even worse, she remained friends with Cindy. Yeah. Well, there's your trouble. <laughs> yeah. I know what's wrong with it. <laughs> so fast forward to February 1999. Angelica was still struggling to make ends meet and had complained to Cindy that she had no money to celebrate her then boyfriend's birthday. Cindy told her she would bring her some cake mix, at least to make a birthday cake, and just to meet her in town the next day. When Angelica showed up, Cindy arrived with David. Cindy told Angelica that she had forgotten the cake mix and suggested they all drive back to David's to make the cake. Nope, again, nope. Mm-mm. Once they arrived, and I'll just give another trigger warning. Once they arrived, David put a knife to Angelica's throat and told her she was being abducted against her free will. Not knowing what abducted meant, Angelica thought it was a joke at first. But then David punched her, and Cindy put a gun to her head, and she realized she was in serious trouble. Oh, I feel so bad for Angelica. Yeah. She yep. just wanted funfetti. I know. Literally, yeah. It's, Angelica has a very, very tragic life. It's very unfortunate. The two then handcuffed Angelica and chained her to the bed. Then they gave her a pill that made her sleep, and many hours later, she woke briefly only to be blindfolded and given another pill. Cindy and David kept her chained to the bed for the next couple days, just going about their business. So she's in the house at this point, not the toy box. David went to work and Cindy watched over Angelica to make sure she didn't escape. So they just kept her there. Just for observation? Like just just for her. Hanging out. Hey, Ange. Just a new toy they got. That's all. Breaking it in. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. More than two days after she was first captured, David told her he was going to bring her to his toy box. He attached a leash to the metal collar around her neck and led her out to the trailer. Once in there, he hit her hard in the stomach and bound her hands and feet and began his torture. Angelica was subjected to an hour of David's sadistic imagination until he looked at his watch and told Cindy it was time to stop. They had been following a Stephen King miniseries and it was coming on at nine and they didn't want to miss it. And let me just say, I am personally offended that David Parker Ray liked Stephen King because I love Stephen King and I don't appreciate that a depraved sadist likes the same thing i do so not not cool david i'm upset for a lot of reasons yep yep i'm upset there was no dvr back then no i'm just kidding (laughs) seriously we just we needed a little brief joke in there yeah Yeah. literally said after thank god for stephen king because i stopped it so as david was cleaning up angelica asked him when she could go and that she would not tell a soul what happened David told her they would free her the next morning and actually acted almost paternal. So you picked up on this earlier, Colby, telling her it would be okay, Mm -hmm. giving her clothes to put back on and actually like hugging her and comforting her, which is, I'm sure, not comforting at all. Very creepy. But sure enough, the next morning, David and Cindy drove Angelica out to a bus stop to go back to Albuquerque. David told her he actually liked her as a person and, quote, had he known her better, he never would have taken her. So he she didn't get the same mixture of drugs that everyone else did, which I think is some weird, I think they kind of knew that she had already kind of been tortured that previous time at the sex party. And then she kind of knew them and she hadn't gone to the police before. So she knew what happened. She had no memory loss. 
So they just trusted that yes. she wasn't going to do anything. And worse, she did try to go to the police and they didn't believe her, which was actually heartbreaking. And then she told her father, who understandably literally wanted to kill Cindy and David, but he died two days later. Oh, so no. I'm not kidding you when I say she had the Ugh, most tragic life. It hurts. I'm irritated this guy should have had a file. Uh-huh. Because he had already been reported yeah, and investigated right. by the FBI, which they're different yeah. divisions. So if she's going, that. yeah, if she's going to the police, like it's completely different. But he should be flagged in some yeah. way across. And this is actually probably before all those databases were perfected you know, or invented in general. But I don't. Yeah, maybe. And, you know, it's funny when you listen to that tape and you listen to the details of this, I as with every serial killer or this category, I think it's in the 70s. But this was in the 90s, like the late 90s. Right, that's why I'm saying. Like, so nuts. I think these databases may have existed, but maybe yeah, not true. have been perfected true. or been, mm-hmm. you know, nationwide quite yeah. yet. But if it was an isolated incident, you know, you yeah. have this woman who's had this terrible life and they don't find her trustworthy. I don't even think but... he looked it up. I, it says that he basically just was like, gonna bring her to the police because she was walking along the highway and then a police officer saw her and picked her up. She told him this whole story and he was basically like, uh, I don't know about you. And like mm. dropped her off. So I don't even think it made it that far. He's like, that sounds like a lot of paperwork. So let's yeah. just file that Awful. under like crazed psychopath and move on with our lives. So just poor Angelica because, and understandably, so after, she spiraled after her father's death. At this point, she just turned to drugs and Angelica's story would end just a few months later. She died of pneumonia that May. So I'm this so poor sad. woman had an awful childhood had awful friends and like was just trying to make it in life kept trying to start fresh couldn't gets this experience and then just this was only a month or a couple months before so really unfortunate god okay so on saturday march 20th 1999 that is indeed a specific date Mm. cindy and david arrived at a convenience store in albuquerque see how many times i had to type that (laughs) um that was known to have prostitutes they asked the pimp for someone, and he sent out 22-year-old Cynthia Vigil. As Cynthia got into the back of the camper, David pulled out a fake badge and claimed he was a police officer, and she was being arrested for prostitution. He put handcuffs on her as Cindy came out with a stun gun. David subdued Cynthia while Cindy drove the camper away. David duct-taped Cynthia's mouth and put shackles around her ankles that were attached to the floor of the camper. As they got further and further away from Albuquerque, David took over the driving and Cindy made Cynthia strip naked and put a black leather mask over her head. So I think at this point she knew it wasn't the police, to say the least. When they got back to David's, they put, again, a metal collar around her neck and chained her neck, arms, and legs to the bed, just like they had with Angelica. And then they played the orientation tape. Cindy and David didn't bother to bring her out to the toy box for the first torture session. They brought some of their favorite tools into the living room and viciously used Cynthia for hours. Over the next two days, Cynthia was subjected to endless horrors, sometimes in the living room, sometimes out in the toy box. The abuse was so encompassing, she would frequently pass out from the pain and fear. Oh, my God. She was only given a reprieve on Monday morning when David had to go to work. He left Cindy to watch Cynthia. Cynthia knew this was her chance. She had to try to escape when David wasn't home. Cindy had kept the keys to the chains on the coffee coffee table. While the keys themselves weren't within reach for Cynthia, the leg of the table was. When Cindy went into the other room, Cynthia managed to drag the table over with her leg, grab the keys, and then push the table back. She then unlocked herself and silently crawled to the phone to dial 911. 
I have literal nightmares of things like this where you're so close. And right as the operator picked up, Cindy came back into the room and hit her over the head (sighs) with a glass lamp and hung up the phone. Cynthia was not giving up. She grabbed an ice pick off the table, which as an aside, the fact that there was an ice pick in the house gives you an idea of the horrors she experienced. And beat Cindy over the head with it. And then ran out the front door. Oh my God, go Cynthia. Uh Uh-huh. Back in the house, Cindy called David to tell him what happened and to come home. And as she was waiting for him, the dispatcher, who had received Cynthia's 911 call, called back. Cindy answered and tried to muster up and sound very normal and said it was a mistake and then hung up. But the dispatcher was very suspicious and requested the police follow up in person. Excellent. I was wondering if yep. we were at a point yet where yep. they would go out and just investigate. Thank you, Kitty Genovese. Mm-hmm. David ar- arrived home quickly and helped Cindy with her head wound. And then the two left in the camper to go look for Cynthia. And meanwhile, Cynthia was literally running for her life. I'm amazed she didn't cross paths with David. I didn't. I don't know what direction everyone was going, but um, I'm sure she thought of that, too. She did pass one car, which she desperately tried to flag down, but the sight of a naked, bloody woman yeah. with a metal collar around her neck was terrifying for this. It's a retiree uh, old woman that was driving, and just the woman sped off. Honestly, I don't know. I, I don't know. This I don't sort know of goes back yeah. to the bystander effect yes. again. Like, yep. Yeah, I, I'm not picking her up. I might call somebody, yeah. but yep. I'm not going to pick this lady up. Nope. No, and the same thing happened with another car. So... I literally cannot imagine how Cynthia was feeling. Like you made it out, you're free, but now you're wide open. Mm-hmm. You're out. This is the desert. Like there's, there are no trees. There's nothing. Were, were there cries in the desert? Yes. In fact, yes. Thank you, Jonglet. That's the book in case anyone's confused. Okay. She did finally happen upon another trailer and it actually stood out from the others. It was so clean and well-maintained and the front door was open and Cynthia just burst through it, probably scaring the hell out of Darlene Breach, who was just sitting there watching TV. Darlene and it's just I think is a wonderful woman. She immediately called 911, took Cynthia, tried to calm her down, gave her a robe, tried to help her, just did I, I can't I'm like giving myself goosebumps mm. thinking about this experience. She's completely naked yeah. with just like Bloody. a collar yeah. around her neck. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and like screaming hysterically, like help call the police. And the police arrived a few minutes later and one of them brought her uh, Cynthia to the hospital while the other went to investigate the mysterious 911 call. That poor officer was most certainly not prepared for what he would find inside the living room that Cynthia had been kept in because not only does it have all of the torture devices that they had been using the bed with chains and all that but there's blood everywhere because of both Cynthia and Cindy shortly after this Cindy and David were stopped by police in their camper and arrested David's reign of terror was over not soon enough no no but I you have to give credit to Cynthia for just like having the strength to escape. I, I, I cannot imagine. So I was just thinking how many other women did she spare yes. the same fate as herself because yep. she was brave enough to act and exactly. try to get out of there. Exactly. A lot though. He did this for years, yeah. right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I'm going to jump right into the trials. I'll just note that the police did an excellent job. The TRC sheriff called New Mexico State Police and they did everything right. Secured the scene. They interviewed the right people. They had the right like chain of custody. They did literally everything right, which helped tremendously for this. Cindy was charged with kidnapping, accessory to the crime of criminal sexual penetration, assault with intent to commit a violent felony, criminal sexual penetration, and conspiracy to kidnap. So... Uh, accessory two things and then actually doing them 
Those are very specific names for charges. Connecticut does not have. I was wondering. I thought I graphic, thought the same thing. Yeah. Graphic charges like that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's like degrees of sexual assault, and that's like included in the elements. But that's yeah. a very specific charge. Yep. Yep. Uh, in questioning, Cindy confessed that David had tortured and killed 14 women. This would not be substantiated. This is what she said. She also mentioned that an old boyfriend had killed a woman named Marie Parker, which sent the police looking for Roy Yancey. Cindy chose to plead guilty to two first-degree felonies of kidnapping for Angelica Montano and Cynthia Vigil, two second-degree felonies of criminal penetration of the two women, and conspiracy to kidnap Cynthia. In exchange for agreeing to testify against David and generally continuing to help with the investigation, she would get minimum 12 years and no more than 54 years and up to $54,000 in fines. Now, the whole time that Cindy was in prison, David was sneaking notes to her in an attempt to for her to not testify against him. Because I think he had found out that she was she had confessed his crimes and was like, nope, I, want, I don't want her to testify. I'm going to win her love. Because she, I think, was just like every man for himself. And it worked. Later that year, Cindy tried to revoke her guilty plea, which was denied. and But she ultimately never testified against David. Just after her 40th birthday, Cindy was sentenced to 27 years behind bars for her role in the kidnap and sexual abuse of Angelica and 36 years for Cynthia. It was ruled that the sentences would run simultaneously, so she would serve only 36 years instead of 63. So let's talk about Roy Yancey. Roy was picked up on Friday, April 9th, and charged with the murder of Marie Parker, as well as conspiracy to commit murder, kidnapping, and tampering with evidence. The next day, he brought them to that remote location where he, David, and Jesse had buried Marie's body, but they couldn't find it. And many suspected that David had come back later to move it. David had his self-proclaimed preferred method of corpse disposal was to open up the chest fill it with rocks, bind the chest closed again with chicken wire, and then drop the body in the bottom of that lake that he lives right near. Yep. I hate that, I hate that he is so resourceful. I yep. hate it. How many... How, are you going to tell us how many women he's accused of killing? Murder? I will. Okay. It, it will not be a satisfying answer. Okay. What else is new? <laughs> uh, so Roy pleaded not guilty to all charges. And funny enough... After hearing this, there was discussion around after the hearing, there was discussion around whether or not there could be a conviction without a body. Marina, uh, any any thoughts there? Um, yeah, I mean it it happens. <laughs> wow, we're really tying in a lot of yeah, cases. That's uh yep. that's Richard Crafts for anyone who's yep. interested. Mm-hmm. Later that year, Roy actually ended up signing a plea and disposition agreement in exchange for a lighter sentence. He now admitted to second-degree murder charges and first-degree charges of conspiracy to commit murder. So the 28-year-old would receive a total of 15 years in prison on each of the charges to run consecutively with 10 years of the sentence being suspended. This meant Roy would serve 20 years with two years parole following. So let's talk about David. David was charged with kidnapping, three counts of criminal sexual penetration, assault with intent to commit a violent felony, and two charges of conspiracy to commit kidnapping and criminal sexual penetration. His preliminary hearing was in April, and I didn't actually know what a preliminary hearing is, despite knowing that phrase a bunch. The purpose of that is to determine if there's enough evidence to go to trial. There were several key witnesses who took the stand, Angelica, and this was about a month before her death, 
Cynthia Vigil, Darlene Breach, the woman who lived in the trailer that Cynthia ran to, Lynn Cummings, who was the hospital nurse who treated Cynthia, and John Briscoe, who was the FBI investigator who had the unfortunate job of investigating the toy box. As you might expect, the judge determined there was most definitely enough evidence to proceed. Actually, a very sad digression. The agent who was responsible for making detailed drawings and diagrams for every single item inside the toy box named Patty Rust shot herself in the head a week after completing the assignment. Oh, my God. Now, the FBI's official stance is that it was unrelated, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. Very how sad. could you how could you say it's completely unrelated exactly. i'm saying like maybe it was later maybe it wasn't like yeah. the thing yeah. but that was probably yeah. maybe someone who's on the edge yeah. mentally and then they had to look at Awful. all of this and then Awful. was like i can't live in a world where this exists yeah. basically so oh very gosh, sad that's so sad as part of the investigation they watched one of the videos in the toy box showing david torturing a woman Unlike many of the other videos, they could actually make out her face and also see that she had a very distinctive tattoo on her right calf. They entered this into their database and amazingly got a hit. It was Kelly Van Cleve. They managed to get in contact with her. And after viewing the video of herself, her memory started to flood back, which I, I can't. I feel like I've said this a million times in this case. I literally can't imagine that. Poor Kelly. That. Yeah. Oh, Why did they have to ruin it for her? Yeah, I mean, like I she had blissfully forgotten yeah she did say she had nightmares and like had like what she thought were memories but was like i don't where would these come from i don't know so she did have vaguely kind of new things and this was this locked into place so really really awful it's so fucked up yeah but with this evidence and additional witness david was additionally charged with 12 counts of kidnapping criminal sexual penetration and conspiracy to kidnap kelly van cleve he waived his right for a preliminary hearing on these charges, but it also meant that Jesse was arrested on these charges uh, for the same crimes against Kelly. However, the judge determined that she would be tried separately from David. She faced up to 150 years in prison and a $140,000 fine if she was found guilty on all these charges. At her preliminary hearing, Jesse watched as the officer who had identified Kelly's tattoo testified as well as Janet Murphy, which was Kelly's ex-mother-in-law. So remember, Kelly had been married to Patrick Murphy, yep. and the family didn't really like her, but actually Janet testified against Jesse. And then finally, Kelly herself, which I'm sure was an extremely intense testif... I was going to say testification. <laughs> we'll just... Which was an extremely intense... What is that called? <laughs> Testimony. testimony. Extremely intense testimony. We'll just we'll just splice our voices together. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Then they played David's orientation tape. Again, to absolutely no surprise, they determined there was enough evidence to move forward with Jesse's trial, which would occur after David's. She ended up making a deal with the prosecution. The judge sentenced her to nine years, suspending six of them, and then let her go because she had already spent more than two years in jail. So Jesse is currently free. What the fuck? Uh-huh. Just going back to them playing the mm-hmm. orientation tape mm-hmm. in a courtroom with him in the courtroom and, and you're staring at him and listening to the horrible things that he says surrounded yep. by strangers. That must have been so beyond uncomfortable. Exactly. Awful. And that was just her, Jesse's preliminary hearing too. So this was just to prove that there was enough reason to, to bring her to trial. Now, David's trial faced delay after delay. David's lawyer filed a series of motions to have David tried separately for each victim, which is super frustrating and unnecessary. 
But the judge agreed, and David's first trial for the kidnapping and sexual assault of Cynthia Vigil was set to start on March 28, 2000. However, the judge was finding it difficult to choose jurors who had not seen the news. Again, understandably, he postponed jury selection until April 4th. Further delaying the trial, the prosecution filed a series of appeals regarding what witnesses could be brought in because they had a bunch of expert witnesses they wanted to use with a focus on you know, DNA, crime, hair, all that sort of thing, and weren't allowed to bring them in. So they were fighting that. The judge decided to expedite things by switching the order of the trials, and instead of starting with Cynthia Vigils, they switched to Kelly Van Cleves. Jury selection for that began on May 23rd, 2000. It took 12 days of questioning over four weeks to finally found the, find the 12 jurors and six alternates. But before the trial was even was set to begin, there was a lot of back and forth about, again, what evidence would be included. Initially, David's lawyer filed a motion to exclude the photographs of the toy box, saying that there was no proof that everything had been in place at the time of Kelly's capture. The judge ruled in favor of that. And part of the excluded evidence was, crucially, David's orientation tape. The trial finally began on Thursday, June 29th. And throughout the trial, David made a big show about how sickly he was due to a bad heart. I do actually think he had a bad heart, but it was very much a a production. He needed breaks, even going to the hospital several times and appearing with an oxygen tank. Evidence against David shown at the trial included the videotape of Kelly Van Cleve being abused, as well as Kelly's testimony. And Officer Briscoe shared the details again of what he had found in the toy box. Three weeks later, on Wednesday, July 12th, closing arguments were heard and the jury went off to deliberate. No decision was made that day and the jurors came back the next day. They were still unable to reach a unanimous decision. First, they were 9 to 3 and then 10 to 2, with the holdouts not believing there was enough evidence to prove that it wasn't consensual. So again, this is, I've now learned, thank you, Marina, that this is in criminal court. They have to be, on, have to be beyond a reasonable doubt, and they had a bit of doubt that it might have been consensual. There was no, no proof according to them. At the end of that day, with the jury still unable to, dis- to agree, the judge declared a mistrial due to a hung jury. So somebody watched the tape of her being tortured and mm-hmm. they said looks like it might have been consensual to they, me. They sure did. You know what would have helped? The orientation. It sure tape. would have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that mm-hmm. probably would have pushed it over the line. Yeah. So I, I can't imagine how frustrating there was delay after delay after delay. The jury was hard to pick and then all these motions and appeals and blah 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 and they finally start and then all this to have it'd be a mistrial and and people were pretty mad too because i think it was only like i forget the exact amount but like eight and a half hours total of deliberation which is not actually that's not that much like they could have kept going and had the discussion but the judge did ask if the jury thought they would come to an agreement with more time and they said no so and it's kelly too the one they made remember this so that's why it's even more heartbreaking to me that this is the one that ends in the mistrial and that was basically what the defense did is they they attacked kelly and and said well you don't even remember and all this stuff and and to the uh prosecution's credit they were saying, well, this is not this is not a trial against Kelly. This is a trial yeah. for David. But um, but I think it it worked. So I don't think they would have declared a mistrial in Connecticut with only eight and a half hours. No. They and like bring them out and give them a specific exactly. instruction on like you need to go back and everyone needs to like thoroughly examine the evidence yep. and think about 
everybody's side. And yeah. It was a very unpopular decision. Mm. So it's like being sent back to your room. You're like, no, you go think about what you just <laughs> said to us. Yes. And you come back with a better answer. Exactly. So they did try again. So jury selection for David's retrial began on November 7th with the trial plan to begin January 2nd, 2001. However, two days into selection, the judge had a massive heart attack and died. Yeah, this is like the cursed case. Obviously, this delayed things further until on March 12th, 2001, a new judge was appointed. And at 38, he was the youngest state district court judge in New Mexico history. And this case was his first as a judge. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Luck of the draw. Right out of the gates. Yeah. Now, wow. good for life and bad for David, he was very, very different from the, the previous judge. So on mon- Monday, April 2nd, the new judge resumed jury selection, and he wanted to move things along quickly. By that Wednesday, they had already selected the jury, and the trial was going to begin the following Monday. The trial proceeded really similarly to the first one, with one key difference. This new judge ruled that the prosecution would be allowed to play David's orientation tape. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. And a week after it began, both sides rested and the jury went off to deliberate. And only five and a half hours later, the jury found David Parker Ray guilty on all counts. That's longer than I would have expected. I would have thought like maybe 12 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. We we all agree. Let's write everybody's names down. Let's go. All right. We're good. Yep. Um, And if you couldn't uh, already appreciate what a terrible human he was, David's response to being found guilty, he had the audacity to say, I feel raped. Oh, I hate him. I hate him so hard. Yeah, I hate him too. Yep. I, I just, I'm sure that that was intentional. I hate him. Awful. Now, that was just the trial for Kelly Van Cleef. The next trial, returning to Cynthia Vigil, was set to begin in June 2001. The trial began, and with the new judge again allowing the prosecution's expert witnesses, so again, overturning the previous judge's uh, determination, David didn't stand a chance. The evidence was overwhelming, and David decided to make a deal. With the arrangement, David would admit first and second degree charges of kidnapping for Cynthia Vigil, her criminal sexual penetration, and a second degree charge of conspiring with Cindy Hendy to kidnap. The state also agreed not to proceed with the trial for Angelica Montano, and David would waive his right to appeal convictions for Kelly Van Cleve and Cynthia Vigil, which I was pleased to read. The judge sentenced David to 223 years in prison, 132 years for the kidnap and torture of Kelly Van Cleve, 36 years for Cynthia Vigil, and increased both by one-third for aggravation, which I did not know was even a thing, but that added another 56 years. He also ordered that these sentences be run consecutively. So the earliest David would be eligible for parole is the year 2100. It would never come to that. David died of a heart attack in jail just a year later in May 2002, which That's is bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And you asked earlier, Marina, about the count of victims. There is still no specific count, although the FBI found literally hundreds of videos and pictures of victims they're mostly unidentifiable and because sometimes he let them free and sometimes killed them it's impossible to know how many bodies he sunk into the lake oh my god the only body ever found related to this and only then kind of because it was about, about the same time was a fisherman who saw a burlap sap floating in the lake but the body was too decomposed to identify so 
Were, I, is yeah. it possible that any of those videos were consensual? Because he did have some freaky friends, right? It, it is. And he had all those sex parties way back. So I, that's why it remains unknown. I mean, it, it could be one. It could be two. It could be a hundred. It's it's very hard to tell. Um, but he he was a monster. Yeah, he was. Should have just should have just kept it at the sex parties. Didn't didn't mm-hmm. have to do the crimes. Yep. No. So that is the toy box killer, which is it's interesting that his moniker is the toy box killer. I know that like there's names like the Fitbit murder is not all about the Fitbit thing. They just get their names, but it really like it's almost worse than killing. You know, like it it's it's like the toy box torturer would be a better Yeah, name. actually, when you put so. it that way. Well, I wasn't I wasn't too sure. I thought you were kinda going for like a rebrand the serial killer oh. at first, but like he wasn't as far as we know, he wasn't a serial killer. No. He was a serial kidnapper and rapist. Exactly. And even Marie Parker, technically he didn't kill what is what would that be? Second degree murder? I don't really know. But that was you know, Roy killed Marie. Um but and yeah, it's unfortunate. All of it. He's terrible. I always have a hard time ending these because it feels like it's it's just such an intense read and then I'm like, okay, so thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'm just disturbed my core. Yeah. I kinda was right out the get go because yep. I just knew um some yep. of these details. Yep. And I'm pretty like so we'll post a picture of the toy box on the Instagram mm-hmm. probably with like a warning mm-hmm. um label and just scarring it is it is it's scarring like i i can't think of another killer or rapist quite as intense yeah as this no like this just goes above and beyond exactly not this intense but i when i think of like people who really go above and beyond i i guess for lack of a better Mm -hmm. term um i do think a lot about israel keys Mm. he is a just diabolical mastermind um so i thought about him a couple of times in terms of like preparedness for for Mm. what was about to happen because he's the one and we won't go into detail don't say too much because i am gonna do the shit out of this case one day (laughs) (laughs) but where he would leave things for himself Mm -hmm. for him to be able to use later i'll I'll leave it at that but yeah exactly yep that's a good one well, in terms of telling a podcast, yes, but in, in, not, not a good one in real life. Not yeah. good in, in terms of what he yeah. did, but more just, wow. Yeah. And as I said, I mean, I, I feel like I almost became desensitized writing all of this. I was like, okay, this is, I'm, I'm leaving out. I, in fact, texted both of you earlier to make sure I was telling the right amount of detail because it was a fine line of telling detail and having an appreciation for what happened, but also, first of all, not scarring people beyond what I did. But also, there's a little bit of me that doesn't want to give the satisfaction and god forbid there is anyone listening that is like on david's side or in that camp i don't want to describe anything and give any pleasure or anything so if you really want to know you can read the book it is in great detail in the book um and elsewhere but so yeah i never like i said i never know how to end these things but um you know we'll post the pictures on the instagram and and let us know if you have thoughts and um questions anything but please share your thoughts on our instagram at grim crime podcast and follow us for these case photos future case photos and more information on future episodes and as always if you're enjoying listening to grim please read us and follow us wherever you listen it really makes a difference first of all it makes our day when we get to see that but it also helps we part of what we like to do is have people listen to us and and they can only hear it if we're we're out there so 
um, please do that. And as we always say, we're now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. And if you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive. Till next time, gremlins. Thanks for the nightmares, Laura. Bye.